Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that we can gather this afternoon. We come from different stories and backgrounds, but Lord, there is one God. And would we seek your heart and would you transform us with your word that we would know how to live, that we would know how to think, how to feel as we come alongside you, Father. So be with us now, be with me as I teach through chapter 37, would encourage and transform our lives. For your glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen. So the book of Genesis is essentially the story of this amazingly good God. The true God of the universe who created a good world, but its people rebelled against him. The first people rebelled against him and the rest of humanity are under a curse. This rebellion, these crimes against God is what we call sin. And we see the effects today. I saw the effects on YouTube when there were some ladies fighting over a bag of toilet paper. There's a bag of toilet paper on the ground. They're just, they're beating each other up. Somebody should have just came and grabbed it when it was on the ground. That is the world we live in. People are, anyways, crazy. I'm not going to get in the toilet paper. But sin is killing us. It's causing us to have divisions and frictions in our family, at our workplace. It's causing our minds to not think properly. Sin is all around us. It's in us. And so this good God created this good world, but his people rejected it and rejected God. But the story of the Bible is how God is restoring the world to himself. How God is restoring the world to himself. Despite our sin, despite our failure, God is in motion, working. And so as you're reading these 66 chapters, telling this one story of God's restorative work in the world. This is the Bible. It's not a whole bunch of different stories. It's one major story and how God is restoring the world to himself. And this is good news for every one of us at any point in time. And here we are in the first book of Genesis. And God had these relationships with people. Certain people that he made, made a promise to. For example, he made a promise to a man named Abraham. In chapter 12 and in chapter 13, he says, I'm going I'm to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And kings will come from you. And then we're reading of, as you read through Genesis, how this promise is going from Abraham's generation to the next generation, to the next generation, to the next generation. And here in chapter 37, we're hearing how that promise is coming down through a family, through a man named Joseph. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow us on the screen here or uh, take part in the ancient practice of listening <laughs> and staying awake. And this is the story of Joseph. We're going to talk about the providence of God and what that means. So the story of Joseph is about God working his will, his promises, through everyday events of life. God is involved in all events and directs all things according to his own purposes. This guidance and this care is known as providence. This guidance and this care from God is known as providence. God will accomplish 
his unstoppable goal of restoring the world to the way it was supposed to be through his own providence. And so in Genesis 12 to 50, it focuses on God's blessing being passed down from one generation to the next. As I've said before, it went from Abraham to a man named Isaac to a man named Jacob, now to Jacob's son Joseph. And now the rest of Genesis will focus on Joseph. In particular, we're going to see how the providence of God works through Joseph's life. In the ups and in the downs. And in this chapter, if you're familiar with it or read beforehand, good for you, by the way, if you did that, there's a lot of downs. There's a lot of downs in this chapter. And a disclaimer, viewer discretion is advised. There are horrific things in this chapter. We see things such as sibling rivalry. We see dysfunctional families. Actually, throughout Genesis, we see that. We see dysfunctional <laughs> families and we see sibling rivalry. That's kind of like what Genesis is about. Just people who are screwed up and these families who are fighting each other and killing each other. But this chapter in particular is kind of almost worse. It almost sinks lower than any other chapters. Yet God in his providence, he's working for the ultimate good of his people to fulfill his promises. And this is good news for each of us. Because we need good news, don't we? Do you need good news? Especially in this time? Before coronavirus, eat, we, we needed good news. And now we need good news. Amen. We need good news. And the Bible is good news. Chapter 37 is good news. Genesis is good news. So here we go. Chapter 37, verse 1. We read, So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan, where his father had lived as a foreigner. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. So he has 11 brothers. And he's telling his dad about the bad things they were doing. Today we call that a snitch, or a tattletale, or a rat. So Joseph is snitching on his brothers right now. Verse 3, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children, because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. And so Joseph, he's the second youngest son of Jacob. Joseph, as I've already mentioned, has 11 brothers. 11. And why did Joseph's brothers hate him? Well, he's a snitch. He, he ratted on them for the bad things they were doing. We're not told what they did. All we're told is that Joseph ratted them out. Why do his brothers hate him? Second thing, Jacob, the dad, clearly loves Joseph more than the rest of them. And he even gave him a special robe. Son, I love you so much. I know I got 12, uh, 11 other kids, but 
well, 12, I guess, there's a daughter in there somewhere, Dinah. But I'm going to make you a special robe. That would not go down well in my family. I got, I got three daughters. If I come home, I'm like, Emerald, I have this special, amazing thing for you. And Audrey's going to say, what about me? Audrey's three. Emerald is four. That would not go well. That's like parenting 101. You just don't do that. You don't have favorites. But if you do, you do not let the other kids know. Right? <laughs> you don't tell them, and, and let alone give them a special gift. Of course the brothers hated him. Jacob should have known better, though. Because Jacob's dad had a favorite son, and it wasn't him. It was his brother Esau. He didn't take Parenting 101 either. You shouldn't have favorites. You shouldn't have favorites. And Jacob, he suffered lifelong hurt because of his father's favoritism towards his brother Esau. Jacob should have known better, but he didn't. But Joseph doesn't really help the situation either. He's a rat. He's a bit, of na- he's a bit naive. I'd say really naive. He's quite clueless, as we continue to read in verse 5. One night, Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field, tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundle stood up, and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. His brothers responded, So you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because his dreams and the way he talked about them. So back in the day, dreams were kind of symbolic. They had more meaning than they do now. I have a lot of friends who like to tell me about their dreams every day, and I kindly listen. Annoyed inside, but outwardly, wow, tell me more about that dream. Sorry, if you're one of those people who tell me your dreams, I'm listening, I'm listening. But in the ancient Near Eastern culture, dreams had this symbolic meaning. And this dream angered his brothers, who cannot accept this dream and the fact that this dream says he would rule over them. Which, spoiler alert, by the way, Joseph will rule over his brothers. We continue with our naive friend and clueless friend, Joseph. Verse 9, soon Joseph had another dream, and again he told his brothers about it. Listen, I have had another dream, he said. The sun, moon, and eleven stars bowed low before me. What are there eleven of right now? (laughs) Oh, 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 he's having some cosmic dream? No, they're not thinking that. Verse 10, this time he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers, But his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that? He asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. Soon after this, Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. When they had gone for some time, Jacob said to Joseph, Your brothers are pasturing the sheep at Shechem. Get ready, and I will send you to them. I'm ready to go, Joseph replied. 
Go and see how your brothers and the flocks are getting along, Jacob said. Then come back and bring me a report. So Jacob sent him on his way, and Joseph traveled to Shechem from their home in the valley of Hebron. When he arrived there, a man from the area noticed him wandering around the countryside. What are you looking for? he asked. I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph replied. Do you know where they are pasturing their sheep? Yes, the man told him. They have moved on from here, but I heard them say, let's go on to Dothan. So Joseph followed his brothers to Dothan and found them there. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. And as he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. So a cistern was like a well. And back in the day, it could be 10 feet wide and like 16 feet deep. So it was like a, a well, it was like a pit. So let's kill him and throw him in one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Now he's traveling to Dothan. That's about 100 kilometers north or like a five to six day journey. So it wasn't just like, hey, go to Timmy, who's around the block. Your brother's are there. Go get him for dinner. No, no. You go by yourself with your robe to your brothers that hate you six days away. Tell them a message or go get them. Go see how they're doing. And Joseph's like, okay, dad, that sounds like a great idea. Maybe they want to hear another dream. I don't know what he sounded like. I'm sorry, but naive, naive. But Reuben, one of the brothers, had other plans. Verse 21. But when Reuben heard of their scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. Let's not kill him, he said. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. So Reuben says, let's not kill him. This wasn't a suggestion. Rather, it was a forceful and decisive commandment. So when Reuben says, let's not kill him, it, it should rather say, you do not kill him. We do not kill him. And when he says, why should we shed any blood? It's better translated, you shed no blood. So he wasn't like, hey, Maybe this isn't such a good idea. He was, he was trying to lay down the law here. He wanted to distance himself from this idea. Throwing Joseph into the cistern was just part of his rescue plan. We continue, verse 23. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. Then they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Then, just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to the Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers 
pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt. Egypt was a big, was big into international slave trade. So this is what's happening. Joseph is sold into slavery and is taken to Egypt. Verse 29. Sometime later, Reuben returned to get Joseph out of the cistern. When he discovered that Joseph was missing, he tore his clothes in grief. Then he went back to his brothers and lamented, The boy is gone. What will I do now? Then the brothers killed a young goat and dipped Joseph's robe in its blood. They sent the beautiful robe to their father with this message. Look at what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son? So what's happening here? It's the sin of deceit. The sin of deceit has passed down through the generations. Because Jacob deceived his father in Genesis chapter 27 with the skin of a goat. Now he himself is being deceived by his sons with the blood of a goat. And their father recognized it immediately. Yes, he said, it is my son's robe. A wild animal must have eaten him. Joseph has clearly been torn into pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes and dressed himself in burlap. He mourned deeply for his son for a long time. His family all tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. I will go to my grave mourning for my son, he would say, and then he would weep. There's a bitter irony here. As Jacob's son, sons used their brother's clothing and the blood of a dead goat to deceive Jacob. And Jacob, he deceived his own father back in chapter 27. And now Jacob's deceit has come full circle. Verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianite traders arrived in Egypt where they sold Joseph to Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was captain of the palace guard. Now you read this and it's quite the story. But why was this written? It's not like a good bedtime story. You read to your kids, but you should. If you read the Bible, you should read this and talk about it later. But why was this written? Because when we read the Bible, we shouldn't just think, what does this mean for me? That's not the first thought you think. The first thought you think when you read the Bible is, what did the original audience, what did they hear? Better yet, what did the original writer mean to say? That's called authorial intent. We want to know what the author wrote. What was his intention? So if I read this chapter and think, oh, this means that you should give $1,000 to the Northern Collective. Look. And I'll just start choosing things. That's not what the author meant to say. Clearly, we, we want to know its authorial intent. Because the original readers who were in the wilderness, they had just followed this man Moses in the wilderness. They're thinking, how did their ancestors end up in Egypt? How did our ancestors end up in Egypt? And here's the story. A seemingly horrible, horrible story 
of a young, naive, clueless man who was sold into slavery and ends up in Egypt. He was one of the ancient descendants of their people. So they think, oh, that's how we ended up in Egypt. But it's more than that. When they ask, how did, they end up, how did our people end up in Egypt? And as the writer is sharing the story, it's showing the providence of God and how he's working all things for his own purposes, even when it seems so grim. Joseph was a favored son, which made his brothers hate him. Joseph had dreams that aggravated his brothers, not once, but twice. His brothers then tried to kill him, but then this caravan shows up with a bunch of camels, and they decide to sell him into slavery instead, and now he's in Egypt. And why is that important? Because the rest of Genesis is a story of Joseph, and how through all these events, and we'll read more as we, as we continue, Lord, we, Lord willing, read through Genesis, how one thing leads to another, and then his brothers end up in Egypt because there's a famine in the land, and Joseph, one thing leads to another, you've got to stay tuned by coming to church to see what happens, but he ends up being like the prime minister of Egypt. The providence of God is what's happening here. So I want to leave us with two applications. What does this mean for us? When we read this, when the original readers read this, they think God is in full control here. Wow. He's working the messes of my life for his own good purposes. Two applications. The first thing, it's a caution against victim identity. It's a caution against victim identity. So Joseph's life, we saw it was full of betrayal, unfairness, and tragedies. That's a fact. And Joseph had many reasons to claim he was a victim. Because in fact, he was a victim. But he does not choose revenge, anger, or self-pity. He does not let his circumstance and the unjust treatment that he received define him. And actually, if you read on from this chapter to the rest of Genesis, there's not even a hint of self-pity. There's not a hint of poor me. That's not like me. I'm always the victim. Everyone else is wrong, and I'm always right. Right? Do you think that sometimes? No, you don't. No, no, no. preaching to the choir here. We're all victims. We're always wrong. We are always the ones wronged. Whether it's the phone company, the taxes, the DMV, my waitress, whatever it is. Everybody is wronging me. I'm the best. Everyone else is an idiot. I'm a victim. That's what we think. Is it not? Because sin, which we've inherited, looks after number one. It looks after yourself. Sin is inherently selfish. And we look after number one. But Joseph, he doesn't do that. And the writer of Genesis wants us to understand that even though Joseph is literally enslaved, at this point he is now a slave, he chose to reject the slavery of self-pity and victimhood. 
He chose to reject the slavery of self-pity and victimhood. One writer puts it this way, enslavement to victimhood is neither biblical nor Christian. Enslavement to victimhood is neither biblical nor Christian. Now, don't hear me as a heartless, heartless man and I have no sympathy because we must never minimize those who have been wounded or imply that they are unreal because we all carry wounds. We all carry wounds. And some of it goes way back to when we were young. So we should never say, get over it. Get over it. We should never, ever say that. There has to be sympathy, compensation, if necessary, and reconciliation, if possible. But we must never allow victimhood to define us or enslave our souls. Our circumstance does not define us. Do you hear that? Our circumstance cannot, should not define us. If you are a believer, our identity is in God as his sons and as his daughters. We must believe his word that God will work good out of past evils and that trusting him, we will one day say with Joseph to the past evils, he says this in the very last chapter, one of the very last things. He says, you intended harm to me in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. You intended to harm me. He's talking to his brothers. But God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Joseph chose to forgive. He was not enslaved to be like, oh, my brothers are coming. They're hungry. Egypt's got a lot of food. There's a famine in their city. I'm now the prime minister. You know what I'd do? You're all going to jail. You guys are going to have your own little cisterns to sit in. Yeah, I remember that. I was naive, but now I'm the man. No, he doesn't do that. He says, you intended harm to me. Another translation says, you intended evil. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He puts his hope in God and Joseph chose to forgive. This is radical forgiveness. And what's this like, what is, the, what is this a picture of? When we consider the sacrifice and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, he was the most innocent person ever. He suffered unjustly at the hands of evil men and women and women. Jesus Christ, who claimed to be God in the flesh, was whipped, was hung on a cross. He bled. For doing what? If you read the New Testament, he has done no wrong. Yet he is killed, he is murdered. Yet incomprehensibly, as he's hanging there on the cross 2,000 years ago, this is what Good Friday is about. What does he say for those who are familiar with the scriptures? What does he say on the cross, hanging there by his hands and his feet? Forgive them. Forgive them. What? 
What? That causes me to check my heart. That causes us to check our hearts. What kind of unforgiveness are we holding towards other people? It is killing you if you have unforgiveness. Jesus was the most and is the most innocent person ever. Yet, again, incomprehensibly, God's providence takes that evil situation and brings it for good. What kind of good? The forgiveness of our sins. People try to kill Jesus, mock him, spit on him, whip his back to shreds. This was part of God's plan. The providence of God is mind-blowing. And it is good news for each of us. And this is called the gospel. Because Jesus Christ is offering his forgiveness at every cost to himself for every one of us. And by faith alone, our sins are forgiven and our relationship with God is restored. This is the plan. Jesus Christ is the plan. And our response to this gospel is something we read in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where it says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. There is no victim mentality. It is a trusting a deep trusting in God. Our second application as we close is optimism and trust. Optimism and trust. God is providentially in control of everything that happens. Do you believe that? He's in control of everything that happens. God is all-powerful, and His providence is at work in every circumstance. The life of a Christian should be full of optimism and trust despite anything that happens. Do you believe that, dear Christian? Anything, everything, the horrible things, the good things, everything. And we know that in the midst of life's horror stories, the providential power of God is at work to do us good because He's a good and loving Father. This is true when we are sick, when we're in trouble with our children or grandchildren or with our spouse, when our jobs are stressful and we don't have work, when our finances are strained and questionable, when our family is utterly dysfunctional and our friends are making very poor decisions, and when it seems like the world is spinning out of control. And even now, during the pandemic of the coronavirus, can we trust him? In fact, do we trust him? Is this not now a test for the church? If the church says it is what it is, will it be light in this time of confusion and darkness? Where will we stand? Will we panic? Will we be afraid? Where will we be? Which side of history is the church going to be on? The providence of God is a truth to learn now because life is not going to get easier. Life is not going to get easier. And take it to heart that God is at work to do you good. I don't know what brings you here today. Actually, I do know. It's the providence of God. There might have been other circumstances, other thoughts. But you are here 
because God has brought you here. Maybe reluctantly. Maybe you were dragged here. And I praise God's providence for that. But you're here and God's words are speaking to you. Surrender your life to Him. Maybe it's for the first time. Give your life to God. Put your faith in God now. He's welcoming you. 2,000 years ago was a display of that when He hung on the cross. Put your faith in His providence. It is for your good and for our joy. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words. Lord, I ask that everyone who's sitting here, would they know your presence personally? Would they know your providence personally? And trust you. Would we be filled with optimism and trust? Christians should be the most joyful people in the world, Father. But sadly, I know I am not. Lord, would you heal my heart? Help me to trust in you in everything. In your name we pray. Amen.